Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I want to welcome the audience to the weekly podcast offered by Prestige Community Resources. And we are in partnership with the Department of Behavioral Health here in Washington, D.C. And we are honored and privileged to have a special guest with us, Michelle Member, who is the nurse practitioner, who is also the director of the Assertive Community Treatment Program with Prestige. Nurse Member, so glad to have you. How are you today? I'm awesome, Paul. You know, it's always a pleasure to be in your presence. So I'm looking forward to this podcast. This is going to be a wonderful discussion. Uh, as you know, we've only we only select experts <laughs> on various topics. And when we decided to do some share some information about the ACT program and ACT services, you mm-hmm. were the first person that came to mind. You're really a building an extraordinary program at Prestige. And we want to talk a lot about that and some of the barriers related to developing a new ACT program, particularly during a pandemic season. So there's some uniqueness here with how we apply the service in the community. But before we get to the technical stuff, let's talk about you. I want to know, and I want the audience to know, where are you from? What was your training like? How did you prepare yourself for the field? When did you arrive to the DMV? Tell us a little bit about you personally. Of course. So my name is Michelle Mba. I am currently a nurse practitioner in the DMV area, and I have worked in mental health for approximately 10 years. I am originally from Cameroon, Africa. I came to the United States and um, settled in the Silver Spring Tacoma Park area about 1997. I moved here with my parents, and uh, we pretty much migrated from Cameroon, Africa, and transitioned into a new culture in America around that time. And my mom, you know, my parents came with six kids. And so it was a big transition for us. It was an, it was an eye opener. It was a different culture, um, different way of living, different food. I remember the first time I smelled popcorn, it made me sick to my stomach because we don't necessarily cook with butter. So, you know, just little things like that, that you're learning a new culture and you try to really acclimate yourself to and, and, figure out what do you pick from that culture and what do you leave behind? So that was very different. And uh, during that time, I saw my parents going from being extremely happy about their accomplishments and happy about where they were to being a little bit apprehensive and a little bit scared because here they are in a new country with six kids and have to figure out how do we feed those kids and put a Mm -hmm. roof over their shoulders. That was my real first introduction to mental health. Um, I come from a culture where mental health is not really uh, popular. It's not something that we we learn about. We don't really do counseling therapy. You have to kind of deal with your feelings. 
-hmm. deal with your emotions. And so when I came here, I noticed and I realized, oh my God, if somebody that has already had this experience can just talk to mom and dad about it, or somebody who has an idea of how these things can affect you, you know, the anxiety that comes with it, the depression, the sadness, maybe mom and dad will be in a better place and feel more confident that they can take care. So that was really my first introduction. So from a very young age, I was already committed to learning a little bit more about mental health. I didn't know what profession I would go into, but I had an idea that it would be with, it would have to deal with the mind. It would have to deal with dealing with emotions, dealing with feelings, um, feeling good about yourself, things that help you um, become a person of confidence, a person that you want to see every day. So, um, you know, it's remarkable at that age, the level of sensitivity you had just around emotional distress, right? Yeah. It sounds like you already had some gifts or some natural attributes that lended itself to being especially aware when someone's emotionally uncomfortable. Talk about the anxiety you picked up on, the depression, situational stress. Yes. Uh, but again, it's remarkable that at such a young age, you were gifted with the ability to, one, assess it, and two, to know that there may, should be a remedy to that, that there needs to, there should be, and well, not knowing it, what it was, but. Yeah, and, and I think it, it, what it was is that when I was back home, my parents came home from work every day happy. I mean, excited. They would bring us, whether it was the street food that they bought or mom may stop and get some yogurt, something. It was almost on a, it was weekly, at least twice yeah. a week, mom and dad would come home with things to make their kids know it. And when we came here, all of that changed. I wasn't expecting them to come home with gifts, but I was expecting them to come home with smiles. And right. that was missing. And I realized left. how, okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. And I realized how that was affecting me. And my, my train of thought was, if it's affecting me this way, I can only imagine how it's affecting my younger siblings. So I was very determined at that age to be strong enough to make sure that if I have to be the intermediary person between the parents and my younger siblings, that I kind of understand that and I'm able to make sure that they don't feel that mom and dad don't care for them. That's right. Because mom and dad are going through adjustment, you know, an adjustment period. You know, Michelle, I've mentioned time and time again on this podcast that I don't believe people who do this work, behavioral health services, choose to do it. I think we're chosen to do it and chosen through a set of experiences, almost some divine application, but it takes some uniqueness and some gifts to even have the interest to want to do this work. Now, in behavioral health, you could have taken a journey by getting a psychology degree, psychiatry degree, social work degree, a degree in counseling, Mm -hmm. but you were specific and very clear and strategic on getting a nursing experience. Tell me why. Why nursing? And, and how did you pursue that? It's a great question. I went to Montgomery Blair High School. And when I was there, I learned that there was an opportunity. If you were a junior student and your grades were good, you had the opportunity to submit a request to go to a technological school. So I would be at Blair when I was in my 11th grade. I would be at Blair High School up until maybe 12 noon. Then I would get on the bus and go from Blair to Thomas Edison when I was wow. learning to do a CNA, where I was doing a CNA course. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, and that's, that was my, my first introduction into nursing. So in high, I, when I graduated from high school, I graduated with a CNA certificate. Okay. And I started working with individuals with a developmental disability. Yes. And it was just the most, 
You know, it wasn't the money. It's just the reward. You look at their faces when you're feeding them, when you're washing them, when you're caring for them, when you're playing with them. It's just that they want to say thank you, but they don't have the ability. And that made me feel warm. And Absolutely. that was that's how that love for taking care of people grew. And then obviously you decided to pursue more training. Totally. Uh, and tell me more about the training you, you went on to uh, obtain. Yes. So I graduated from high school. When I graduated from high school, my mother was an LPN. And so oh. she was already into the nursing field. And she was like, Michelle, you're such a caring person. Consider nursing. Now, I, I also I'm a very I like to challenge myself. I love reading and I love debate. So I wanted to go into debate. I wanted to be an attorney or, or a journalist, you know, mm. because I, I really enjoy having these, com- you know, conversation and yes. sharing point of views. And my mom was always like, yes, I, and I think you will succeed in anything that you do. But when I see you as my daughter, I really see you as a caring person. And I want you to be happy in your career. So why don't you do nursing? Because you will always have a job. And if you want after nursing, you can go and pursue whatever else. So I followed that. I did nursing and I never left it. Yeah. Now I'll say this. I've, I've seen you practice direct services and I've seen you manage your teams. And I am very aware of the tenacity that you bring and the energy you bring to your work. So it's not necessarily a conflict between being a sensitive, good practitioner and being assertive and an advocate for the population that we're, we're serving. So I think you, I've, what I believe is you place demands on yourself and those who you work with to bring your A game, to become very prepared, but not limiting and not excluding sensitivity to the practice. Did I say that right? Yes, you definitely did. And I think it comes from, like I said, it's years of experience and I've been very versatile in my nursing field. And that has really opened up doors. I think one of my best experiences. So after, you know, while working with individuals with developmental disability, like I said, it really strengthened the fact that Michelle, maybe you need to go into nursing or into some kind of you know, um, healthcare field where you actually are providing services and you're you're one-on-one with the clients or with the patients. So I went to Montgomery College, got an associate. Uh, From there, I transferred to Howard University, received my bachelor's in nursing, worked at Howard University on the med search floor because I wanted to have clinical knowledge. A lot of times in behavioral health, you're treating a client who has maybe depression or anxiety, but they also have diabetes. They also have hypertension. They also have maybe heart disease. They also have other things. And sometimes the, the anxiety that they are expressing every day comes from them physically not feeling well. And so having that understanding really kind of broadened my horizon and made me understand that sometimes you can see something, something can be expressed in the behavioral sense, but it's not behavior, it's really physical. And once you take care of that physical, you know, you can eradicate the behavior. And so it was really, those are the things that kept me in the field, continue to learn, continue to um, understand clients, meet them where they are and grow from there. So after Uh, Howard University, you decided to go on to graduate school, I understand. Yes. After Howard, I worked for maybe about five years in the field before I went um, to to grad school. But my first graduate degree was actually in healthcare IT. And, Mm -hmm. And that was only because I understood that in healthcare, it's not only the care you provide, it's how you document also the care you provide. And so healthcare IT was, for me, it was a broader understanding and also because I, also, I had leadership skills. So I knew that I, I didn't want to just stay clinical. I also wanted to 
expand on my That's leadership right. qualification. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons uh, why I did that. But one of the things that really broadened my horizon was when I worked in hospice. And in hospice is really when I decided that behavioral health was the best place for me to be, was where I would use, I would better use my, my skills. Right. Uh, was because in hospice, you see somebody at the end of life and they have to basically have a flashback on everything that they have accomplished. And hopefully before they go, they have that sense of peace within themselves, you know? So you're, you're a registered nurse yes. and, a, and a nurse practitioner. Correct. Can you give us the distinction between the two and the requirements for licensure for both of them? Of course. So um, a registered nurse, um, I have a BSN, um, as a registered nurse with a bachelor's in nursing science or the bachelor's in science of nursing, it allows you to follow doctor's order. So everything mm -hmm. that I do is based on, is it, has it been ordered, you know, okay. and educating the client about how to follow those orders and what is, you know, how to gain a better, a better life. Right. So as a nurse practitioner, you are a little bit more advanced in the sense that you can actually prescribe medications to the client. Right. Okay. More than education. You do more than teaching. You can actually say, okay, you're, you're a little bit more engaged and involved in the client in terms of you can change their treatment protocol. As a registered nurse, you follow a treatment protocol given by another doctor. And yeah. so that's the difference. Of course, it's more liability, but it's also a growth. It's also more one-on-one. -on -one. You have to be more engaged and involved with the client because you want to make sure that whatever treatment protocol you are advising the client to follow is what works best for that client. Absolutely. Now, I understand that for both the RN and the MP qualification, there's a, there's a licensure exam involved. Of and I've I, I heard all kinds of reactions uh, from people of how intense uh, the preparation is, how anxiety provoking uh, taking the test is, and just how demanding getting through that experience is. How did you find the licensure exam experience for the nurse practitioner? I found it to be definitely challenging, but I was very confident that I had the best education. I was very confident in the program that I, I, I went to. I went to Walden University. Yes. It was online. So it allowed me to continue to work. But during that time, I was already working in mental health and I was working as an act nurse. So I was exposed to some of the things that I was, I would read every day, at, you know, in school. And I also had some of the best preceptors. I work with uh, Dr. Kazi, who is an ACT doctor, ACT provider. She had worked at Elson Elizabeth. She had worked at um, MBI. She had worked on the ACT team. She'd been out on the field. So a lot of education with medication and side effects and what's best. And I mean, I had that, you know, I had that, that advantage that some nurses in their training and in their schools don't have. I also uh, work part-time with uh, Veritas um, Healthcare in Georgetown with two doctors, Dr. Christopher Rajinsky and Dr. Um, Naveen Reddy, mm. who were so, so instrumental to my growth. And to this day, they still are because I consider them mentors. They opened up doors, they educated me, they made sure that don't just be the nurse practitioner that gives medication just because you, you know, you just want to write a prescription. Understand what medication is best for your client. Understand the behavior that I presented and know what you're treating, which is really important. And so you know, having that, that safety first was my, my, it was how I was taught. And, and to this day, that's how I operate safety first. 
Absolutely. You know, quality supervision, good mentorship is critical for you to fully develop and be the best in your field. In fact, my first clinical supervisor, I still maintain a relationship with today. She's up in age now, but that first year out of graduate school, I was under her supervision and I Mm -hmm. learned so much in the first two years. And she guided me and corrected me and, and gave me the support that was necessary. Now, Michelle, I'm a, a field instructor, and I, I also teach a class at Howard University School of Social Work. And as you know, in, in many programs, there's a direct service track and there's a macro track, which is more of an administrative management track. Mm-hmm. And there's always a question raised by students, which one should I pick? Should I do direct services or should I pick the macro track? And I am, am always an advocate of let's start with direct services. Okay. Let's master the skill set. Let's understand how the work gets applied in the trenches. Because if you're good clinically, you can transfer that into a good administrator and manager. But if you begin just focusing on the management aspects of the service, you may not fully develop your clinical dexterity, being able to really apply some of the models and theories that we take so long to learn in our training. So I appreciate your professional development because you really were focused on clinical applications, mastering those theories, uh, and then, and, and what we're getting ready to talk about is then administrating and overseeing programs that offer the service provision. So let's talk about assertive community treatment, ACT program. What is ACT? Tell our audience, what is that? Assertive community treatment. Even when you say ACT and somebody says, oh, what does it stand for? And you say assertive community treatment, you still have to explain that because exactly. the lame, the, the, the regular person walking on the street was, is still going to look at you like, okay, what does that mean? And so on the ACT team, we treat individuals with severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. We treat individuals that are the frequent flyers in the, in the hospitals, you know, in the ER, because as soon as they feel bad, as soon as there is something, their first thought is, let me go to the ER. You know, we treat individuals who have long, you know, years of substance abuse issues. You know, we treat individuals who have psychosis and psychological issues that are not, that are either untreatable, have not been treated, or that medication are still not really working at that point. Uh, So this is the profile or the group of patients that we used to refer to as seriously and persistently mentally ill. Correct. We're talking about that group? We're talking about that group. We're talking about that group. So we're working with individuals that even if they need constant monitoring, they, they need constant reassurance, they need constant assistance. You have somebody who gets up in the morning, has to take their medication, but doesn't really understand how to take that medication, even, even though it's written on the box. And so you would have a registered nurse that would go to that house, maybe daily, depending on the client's ability to really function, maybe every three days to make sure and to, to double check, are you taking your medication? What are the side effects? What are the, what are the barriers to you taking your medication? So our team is basically there to be the support of these clients and to assist them into maintaining some level of stability. And I'm also hearing not only are you supportive and educating, but you're helping them develop some skills. There's some skill building involved with that. Definitely. And like I said, the team, the role, the goal is to meet the client where they are. So although we have, you know, clients and all of them are on the acting and all of them have persistent severe mental illness, 
everybody's behavior is different and everybody's abilities are different. So I can't treat everybody the same. I have clients that are capable of managing their medication, but they need, they have so much anxiety that they need that constant therapeutic interaction with either a counselor or therapist. And that may be all that they need. They are able to go to work as long as they know they have that support. So it sounds like one of the requirements is individualized treatment planning. Totally. Totally. So when a client comes to us and the client is referring, so we have referrals from multiple organizations within the community, whether it's a transitional home, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's a hospital during the discharge, another organization that maybe do not have an ACT team, a doctor, a a primary care provider, when the client comes to us, we do an assessment. So we have an LICSW sit down with a client, gather information, get a history and get a diagnostic, a diagnostic assessment. We do an intake and then we connect that client to uh, the nurse practitioner or the psychiatrist overseeing the program who does Mm -hmm. further evaluation, um, look into the client's medication, look into the client medication history to decide, are we going to keep them on that medication? Are we going to change the medication? Are we even going to put them on medication at all? You know, what are the barriers to them being consistent with that medication? What do we need to put in place? We have clients that, that when they come to us in the very beginning, we may decide to see them on a daily basis so we can have a better understanding of what their needs are before we slowly, maybe before we can taper that, you know, to say, okay, now that we understand what they need, they may may not need to be seen every day, but they definitely need to be seen um, every two days or once a week, depending on what their needs are. So that's really how, um, how we function. We also have a team approach which is the difference between an ACT program and most other psychiatric programs. On the team approach, you have recovery specialists on the team and every single one of those re- recovery specialists is at your disposition as a client. Yeah. And so, so we have clients, I recently had a client that was extremely difficult. And when I say difficult, it meant that in order to get some level of stability, it was everyday work. And sometimes you are at the house for three hours because you're trying to stabilize the client. Now, if you assign a, such a client to only one person, don't be surprised it's with, within the next two weeks, the person is burnt out because of the level of need. And so the ACT program gives you the ability to actually provide care to that client using all of the different members of the team. So, so nurse member, how, how do all of your team members, and you have a pretty expansive team of professionals that work under your leadership, how is information shared about cases and profiles? How, how do you keep all team members aware of particularly urgent cases or crisis cases at any given time? Thank That's a really good question. So we have a morning meeting that we attend every morning. Every morning. Every morning we get together, we discuss every single case on the team. Now, we have clients that are a little bit more stable, so we may not stay on that case for long. We may just talk about, you know, what what we're going to do with them for the day. You know, they're stable. We're going to drop off medication. We're going to check up on them and then move on. But when we get to those extensive cases, we talk at length about it. So as the nurse practitioner or as the manager, I I may, you know, suggest some things. I have another nurse practitioner on the team, Miss Gladys Nabafu, who is amazing. She is awesome. She's out in the community. She meets the clients where they are. We have a therapist on, on the team, Mr. Mustafa Sharif. Yes. You know, we have a CAC on the team. 
and the, the recovery specialist, we also have Dr. Lawson, who is our medical director. So when we have very, very difficult cases and we need his advice, we call it a team conference. And we but so so and it we, really it really is an interdisciplinary team approach. Totally. And totally. no one has full authority or sole authority to manage any case. It's a team. All cases are assigned to everyone. Everyone exactly. works with everyone. Exactly. I, I like that concept and, and model. And, you know, and let what, me just say something. I've assigned a client to a recovery specialist that I thought had the skill set to maybe meet the client where they are. Maybe there was something, you know, usually when I assign cases based on personality, based on who do I feel or who has a client on their case so that is similar. But I have done that before, and the person would go and meet with the client and come back and say, "Miss Michelle, I had a meeting with the client. I don't really think the client likes me. Maybe we would, so we can try somebody else yeah. on the team. There will be one person that will that can that can reach that client, and if not, sometimes, like I said, myself and the nurse practitioner are so aware of those behavior where we can say, "Okay, we'll step in. We'll right. we'll work with that client and we'll we'll, we'll counsel that client." until they are open to the idea of working with another member on the team. And we do that. Nurse member, I want, really want to highlight a key word in the, in the title, assertive community treatment. That would be community. You're providing services to clients who are living in the community in all kinds of arrangements. I'm sure some are in the shelter, some are in independent housing, some are in supportive housing. But this is a community-based service. Now, I know your team follows them if they're admitted as an inpatient. You don't disconnect from them once if they are admitted. But the fact is the service is applied at the community level. Let me, let me say this. Well, let me ask you. Tell me about your team. So you, you have a certified addictions counselor. You have another MP. You have community support workers who are trained in community support. How many members do you have on your team at this time? I currently have, let's see, I have a nurse, I have an NP, uh, I have a therapist, I have a CAC, mm -hmm. and I have about nine community support workers. So we, my team is about 14, I have about 14 people on my team. And, and, and I understand you're expanding the service that you're looking for and, and hiring some more staff uh, yes. because you're getting a lot of referrals from internal stakeholders and external stakeholders. Is that correct? Yes. The goal is to grow and to develop a, another team. Because of how intense the client pop, the population is or the client base for the ACT program, in order for you to be successful, you don't want to overwhelm the staff. You don't want to, because then you have, you take away from the services you're providing to the client. And so the goal is to have, you know, 10 between, no more than 10 clients, you know, maximum 12, it, it must be on the caseload. Now I have staff that maybe have, the maximum that the staff will have on my team is 12. And if a staff has 12, it's probably because some of those clients on the team has totally said, this is the only person I'm comfortable right. working Understood. with. So until we can break that bond, that client, that, that staff may have the 12, but the goal is to have about eight to 10. That way it's easy to manage. That way you have access or the, the client has access to you. You're more aware of what's going on because it's very intense. The need of the client, I mean, you're dealing with, a, with clients that have severe mental illness, you know, substance abuse issues. And sometimes you're repeating yourself. Sometimes the teaching sure, and the training sure. is redundant. Well, one thing that's obvious based on your description of the program is uh, this isn't work for the faint, meaning uh, not everyone can be an act community support worker. The intensity is real. 
uh, the acuteness of symptoms is, is evident. But it sounds like your team has to be available pretty much 24 hours a day. This is yes, a 24 this, hour service. Am I right? This is a 20, yes, this is a 24 hours. And you said something earlier, we contract with DBH. So DBH in them, the way they're looking at this is, look, I have a contractor out there that's providing these services right. and I'm going to make sure that I'm there to support them so they are successful. So they will give us the resources. They are there to support us. And they expect that we are available to take care of these clients because right. that's what the contract is. And so oh, it's so a one-stop shop. When a, you know, when you are on the act team, you in the community, you are expected to get these treatment. You are expected to get your medication management, have a nurse, has have a therapist, and you have a recovery specialist that connects you to other resources within the community, whether it's housing resources, getting your SSI, getting food stamp. Because once you you can sometimes eradicate or remove some of the client's anxiety when you help them get some of the important things they need in their lives, you know, finance, housing, Absolutely. food, you know, things like that. So Absolutely. we do all of that. Now, if I was a staff member on your team, I guess I would expect to sometimes get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning. Is you that, sure will. Can that happen? Does that happen? We, have, we are on call 24 hours. I have an on-call phone. And, and it's passed around from staff to staff every um, every month. And you get to, uh, I mean, actually every two weeks, we pass the phone because it's, it's, it's tedious. And that phone will ring, whether it's clients that are connected to other organizations. We have clients that are in some day program. You can have mm -hmm. a client go to a day program and throw a fit. The day yeah. program will call you to say, right. hey, we might need you to send your staff over to see, because once the staff develop a good rapport with the client, sometimes the staff can easily decompensate the client, or I mean, the staff can easily um, help the client kind of uh, work through that feelings sure. before you have to call access helpline or, or try to FD 12 a client. So Absolutely. our the goal is what is the least restrictive measure first and safest? And then we work that way. Are you tracking outcomes and, you know, how are you measuring success as a team and as a, as a program? Are we looking at reduction in rehospitalizations? Are we looking at successful application for entitlements? How are you measuring success as a program and as a team? So when I started, that's a good question. That was my first thought when I started. I was, how do I show value to the CEO? That's right to the CFO, to the team, to prestige. How do I show value of the act? So I, I developed a tracking system that we record the MUIs, we record the incarceration rate on our team, yes. we record the, the hospitalization, we record, we record progress. We discuss clients that we met that were at a certain place and now where they are. And every month when we discuss, when we go through our chart and we talk with the team, it gives them the incentive to keep doing the work that they do because sure. they see directly the impact. This is where we started. This is where we are. They see that direct impact that we have on the client and on the population. And I'm, I'm sure when you look at the balance records too, it's not just from where they started, but if you compare where they are now against their entire treatment history, the progress is even more remarkable. Because remember, this is a group of clients, as you described, that rotate in and out of institutions, whether it's incarceration or psychiatric facilities. There's a chronic rotation, there's chronic instability. And so if we, we measure the current experience against the last 10 years of instability, I'm sure we would be impressed around the kind of impact you and your team have had with this group of clients. 
Now, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about COVID-19. This pandemic has really disrupted and changed the face of how we uh, provide services uh, in the mental health community. You know, telehealth now is the primary uh, method of engagement for MHRS or, you know, those receiving outpatient mental health services. How has this pandemic impacted uh, the ACT service or has it? So one of the things that I do when I'm hiring staff is I make sure they're aware that they're essential workers. Mm. Um, I make sure once they lifted the, the restrictions in the city and we could go out and work, I, the one thing that I asked for were um, equipments for the clients, for the staff, so that they don't feel that they're not supported and they make sure that they have what they need if they had to go out in the field. What, what equipment was that that you requested? What did that include? Uh, when I, I meant to say supplies, not equipment. Gloves, face shields, mask, um, hand sanitizer. So that at okay. least if, if you have to be in the field or you're going in the field or you have a client that is in need, you don't feel that you can't support the clients because you don't have what you, what you need. Because I would imagine that based on the chronicity and acuteness of symptoms for this population, that unlike just standard community support services, your staff would actually be out in the community more often, that you wouldn't rely as heavily on telehealth because you have to engage with the person within their system. Is, am I saying that right? You're saying it very, very right. And that's why when you come on the ACT team, you, that's, before I even start an interview, I want to make sure you understand the risk, the exposure, and what you will be doing. This is a job of passion. This is a right. job you do because you want to see somebody go from where they are to, uh, to where they need to be or where they could be. Or you want to improve their lives to a certain degree. And sure. so if you're not committed, if you're not willing to come out of your comfort zone, it's not something that you will be able to be successful in doing. Your program is so attractive, and I'm sure the pay rate is probably slightly elevated based on the, um, the uh, risk. critical skill set and the risk that are imposed. Have you, and I'm sure you're attracting various kinds of persons to, who want to do the, this kind of work. Have you had the experience recently that some people have joined your team to only find out that this isn't this is too intense, that this is not this not this is I didn't sign up for all of this. Have, have you had that experience? I sure have. I, I think, you know, in, in theory and in the book, it's you know, you read about the act and it sounds attractive. It's like, oh my God, it's a teamwork. Look at all of that. But then you come in and you may realize. This is more intense than what I'm willing to sign up for. Yeah. And, you know, you also have to understand the pandemic has put a lot of people in this fear. And I understand some people don't want to take the risk. Some people are just not, they don't, they don't feel that they are the kind of people who can take the, the necessary precaution or they right. just don't want to be out in the field. You know, I understand that. So when I'm interviewing and when I am teaching or when I'm trying to draw, you know, people to come onto my team, my, my main goal is to explain to them the intensity of the program, the risks that come with the program, but also the benefit. You're going to work as a team. You don't, I encourage staff, don't go out in the field by yourself. Go with one of your team members, team up together, see clients together, document your notes, you know, in in the right time, you know, like if you see a client today, take the time because if you're doing it as a group or if you're, if it's two of you guys going out in the field, not only do you mitigate the, the, the risk factor, like the safety, making sure that you're not exposing yourself or you're not in a client's home 
by yourself, not yes, know, especially if you haven't developed a rapport with the client yet. So I, the goal is to make sure that before somebody joins the team, they have that sense of awareness. Now, it's not to say that you can't come and realize that that's not where you belong, but at least you are aware of how intense the program is and that you will be supported. Absolutely. Now, I know in your role as director, you have complete authority and oversight of all elements of the program. But I've witnessed and I'm very aware that there are times where you do go out in the community and provide some service. After this podcast, I have three clients on my on my case that, that I will see today. I plan on seeing today. And again, you look at risk factors, you look at what is ben- the, the benefit. If they respond to me and I know that by having a visit with me today, it might lessen the chance of them going to the ER because they just want to be able to have somebody that they trust. You make those sacrifices. You make no, those really sacrifices appreciate- for your team. I really appreciate your attitude. Not only do you teach, train, and supervise the delivery of the service, but you model professional behavior as well. Being flexible, being available, having meaningful and deliberate contact with the consumers that are under your care. Documentation is important, critical. And so I'm glad to hear you say that you, you expect from your team and yourself timely submission of medical records yes. that are thorough, that are accurate, right? and can be used for any member of the team. Because I imagine since it's a team approach, any member would have to possibly rely on the notes of someone else who had most recently had contact with the consumer. Exactly. Hey, listen, we're running out of time and we might, I'm probably gonna have you come back. But tell me this in closing, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the ACT service at this time? Is there one thing that kind of stands out as a barrier you mean in terms of COVID or just in general? Well, it could be related to COVID or anything else. It might be lack of resources. It might. You know, what? for me, I think COVID has definitely challenged us to think outside of the box. I mean, we're looking at resources different with COVID. And, and that has been a, a really eye-opener because I'm able to really see my team's capability. They don't give up. I mean, I am amazed by just how... Uh, willing and how engaged and involved my team. And they, they're coming up with solution. And because you have to think outside of the box, when life throws you lemon, you make lemonades out of that's, it. That's what you and do. And that's what we do on the ACT team. We don't stop. We look for resources. We, we advocate for the client. We, you know, we have had difficulties finding substance abuse or AA courses that are face-to-face. We have clients that say, I am not going to be able to be successful doing a Zoom AA. So we have to look for, you know, opportunities for how they can do it. We have day programs that have closed down and they say, oh, we can only take, so we have to look for where else can we put, it's been very challenging because these resources in the community are what have been helping stabilize some of these clients. So when you remove that, we have clients that can't go to some of their transitional homes because of A, B, C, and D, because of capacity, because, so it's been extremely challenging, but that has not stopped us because we are dedicated and we are committed to our clients. We are committed to them getting better and we are committed to letting them know that we are here to support them 100%. And my team does that and I'm amazed. And that is what really drives me to be a better manager is because Sometimes you think that the leader is the person driving. I don't drive my team. They drive me because when I see what they're willing to do, it just, it opens my heart and it makes me want to give even more. And that's what we are. Dedication and commitment are definitely very important ingredients in a successful uh, program. Uh, In closing, 
Give us some words of encouragement. Is there anything you could say to us that would encourage us to continue service in spite of uh, looking past the pandemic, trying to mitigate and manage all of these systemic barriers that are in front of us right now? Do you have any words of encouragement for our audience? I'm going to tell you something that I've told my younger siblings, and I never knew it resonated with them. We had a conversation about our New Year resolution, and they all told me that, Michelle, you told us this one time, and we never forgot. The way I live, I tell people, don't get engaged in somebody's life unless your goal and your role is to improve that person's life. Look at that. So if you are in my life or in the client's life, and you're not there to improve, get out. Don't be part of what brings them down. If you can't be part of what lifts somebody up, give them that chance enough to improve their life without you being something they have to work on again. Work on, you know, like that's the way. If I can't be a friend to you, if if my relationship to you or me being part of your life is not to improve, I will be the person to step out. I I won't wait for you to tell me to leave. I will walk away because it's not fair that while you're trying to grow, I'm I'm there to just pull you down. And that's the concept that I utilize to take care of my team and myself, my family, my friends. I live by that. I will walk out if I'm not there to improve. Michelle, I really uh, respect the statement. It has such value. Your passion is undeniable, undeniable. Listen, I know when people see and hear this podcast, they're going to want to know, how do I get in contact with this powerful administrator? And so do you have a, a contact number or a website or how, how would people reach out to you? Yes. Yeah, so if you are interested in, in joining Prestige, if you're interested in joining our behavioral, please visit our website, www.prestigewecare.com. You can fill out a form there to join the team. If you want to work for us, go on the website, fill out an application. HR will reach out to you, let them know you're interested in the ACT program, we'll review your application, and we will set up an interview. I'm encouraging and challenging everybody to give, especially during this time. Open up your heart and give. Prestige is an environment of, of giving. It's an environment of building, of growth. And that's what I really love and I appreciate about our CEO is that he's all about growth. He's all about you can't leave where you, if you came here, you need to leave up here, you know? Michelle, so, yeah. can you share with us your email address, please? Oh, yes, of course. My email address is mmba at pbhdc.com. Yes. Um, also, please uh, visit prestigecommunityresources.org to donate. We have a nonprofit organization that is connected with Prestige. We provide food for our clients clothing for our clients, housing for our clients. We are there to improve their lives. And any donation goes towards that. We give out phones so that the clients can be can reach out to their recovery specialists or their therapists or their nurses so that they can improve their care. We have clients that are, especially with the ACT team, you know, we have clients that are substance abuse. And no matter, you know, despite the, the effort that we put in, we are aware that there is a possibility of relapse. We Absolutely. offer Narcans. We have outreach, you know, community that walk out and canvas the street to assist. That's right. So we donate. We are really part of the community. I live in Ward 8. I see it. And I am proud to be a Ward 8 member. I am proud to live and work in my community yes. because I love this community. 
Nurse Michelle Mimbaugh, I'll tell you, Director of Act Services with Prestige. It's been a, a delightful conversation. You've definitely provided some rich information for our audience to, to kind of digest. And I'm sure people are going to reach out to you probably immediately to get more information from you. Uh, for our audience who's listening, if you want more information about who we are and what we do at Prestige, please visit our website at prestigecommunityresources.org. Listen, as always, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. It's been a very enriched uh, conversation. It has been a pleasure to be your host. Until next time, stay safe and be well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.